Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello, movie truthers. Welcome to this week's episode of Truth and Movies. I'm Leila Latif. I'm Sophie Monks-Kaufman. And I'm Anna Bogutskaya. On the show this week, Dracula is a terrible boss in horror comedy Renfield. Mia Hansen-Love returns with One Fine Morning, and we got to speak with the director about her latest film. And on Film Club, more vampires abound in Bram Stoker's Dracula. All coming up on Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. So hot off the presses, well, I suppose not by the time this goes out, but the cat announcement just ended. What did you guys think about it? It literally ended just this minute. Like it, it ended and we logged on to record this episode. I think I'm, I'm always shocked by the presentation itself, not even just about the films, which we can discuss, but just by the absolute chaos of the way that they are announced. <laughs> And you know that he's always going to get a little subtle dig into Netflix. So I enjoyed seeing that again. Well, I think it's just a huge day in our lives, a huge year in our lives, because Jonathan Glazer has a new film, adding an extra 25% now to his filmography. <laughs> Three perfect films the man has made. So this is I'm absolutely pumped to know that we're going to get another Jonathan Glazer this year. And on that very note, I'm deeply excited that Victor Derite, who's a Spanish filmmaker, has got another film in existence and we're going to be able to see it. I'm very excited. And I've got to say on behalf of my fellow countryman, first ever Sudanese film is going to premiere at Cannes. Well, not the first ever Sudanese film, the first ever Cannes premiere for a Sudanese film. Goodbye, Julia, which I've actually already seen a rough cut of and is absolutely amazing. I kind of know that the filmmakers were really, really keen to be the kind of first ever Sudanese film who did it. And it's happened. Wow. Congratulations, Leila. I mean, uh, on behalf of the Sudanese people, I congratulate you. <laughs> we've actually had a bit of a military escalation happening outside of the capital. So it's, you know, we've, we've been having a rough week. So um, You need some good news in the form we needed of a can selection. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, uh, I think when in certain countries, when you're from, you do develop a bit of gallows humour. So uh, no offence to any of my fellow countrymen if they're listening in. But uh, Sophie, you must be excited that the new Wes Anderson is also on the lineup. Yes. It's not a surprise, but it's nice to see it there in black and white. Always excited for a new Wes, but this one for me looks particularly interesting in that I prefer his live actions to his animations. And this is, as has been well documented, got the most star-studded cast in the world. Easier to say who's not in it than who is in it. Also lo- love it, a sort of single location. Everyone everyone in the film is flocking to this desert town in 1950s America uh, and we may experience alien life. So, yeah, I think it's, it's just going to be uh, a lovely experience for people who know they enjoy Wes Anderson films and for those who don't, unlikely to convert them. I thoroughly enjoyed Terry's presentation of announcement of the Wes Anderson film. It's a Wes Anderson film, full stop. You don't need to say anything else. But that's his brilliance. You, you know what you're getting, and yet you don't. Subtle, infinite variations within something soothingly familiar. Beautiful thing. Wow. That kind of sums up can itself, I suppose, in, in, in many respects. Beautifully put, Miss uh, Monks-Kaufman. Thank you. We should get a move on to a film that I uh, cannot picture premiering at Cannes, but we'll see whether we think that they kind of missed a trick by not snapping this one up to Renfield. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. 
Join our community of film lovers by becoming a Little White Lies member who receive exclusive perks and an insider's view into the world of Little White Lies while directly supporting our independent film journalism. Search Little White Lies membership via your search engine and click through to our Steady HQ page for a detailed breakdown of the plans. Now on to the movies. Count Dracula's lackey R.M. Renfield finds a new lease on life in modern-day New York when he falls in love with Rebecca Quincy, a traffic cop, and decides to finally stand up to his creator in hopes of finally breaking free of his servitude. So, Anna, I mean, we can certainly say that you're a vampire expert. Your series, The Final Girls, did an entire season all about the vampire. So you must have seen every version of Dracula imaginable. How did you find Nicolas Cage's Dracula? So I just like to set the scene a little bit because in 2022, there was two Dracula movies being made. There was Karen Kasama's Mina Harker, which would reinterpret the Dracula story from Mina's point of view. And there was this. And only one of those films actually got produced edited and then released into our unsuspecting eyeballs. And I think it's pretty clear which one I wished had made it to fruition and not this sort of failed comedy, failed action comedy, failed horror comedy. I thought on on the surface that the marriage of an outsized, really iconic, really over-interpreted to death character like Dracula and an outsized acting talent like Nicolas Cage would be a match made in some sort of heavenly version of hell. But I wasn't disappointed because my expectations were relatively low. But I just wish there was more Cage in it. We don't... Obviously, the spin is that it's told entirely through the point of view of Dracula's lackey Renfield, played here by Nicholas Holt, doing essentially a variation on the performance that he did as a zombie in love in Warm Bodies from 2013. We don't just get enough Dracula in this one. Not enough Dracula, not enough Nick Cage. But, I mean... Did you like Nicholas Halton, his this sort of incarnation that he that he has? I mean, I saw him described online as being like one of our most reluctant romantic leads. Surely it's kind of refreshing that this is the sort of thing he goes for. Uh, I actually felt sort of bad about it because I really like Nicholas Holt as a performer. I think he is really funny, especially when he's playing against the attempted typecasting of him as a romantic lead, as a sort of Hugh Grant-esque leading man. He has a mean streak to him, which I think he really plays into fabulously well in The Great, the TV show about um, Catherine the Great and Tsarist Russia politics. But here he seems just disinterested. There is really nothing new to her performance. And like I mentioned, it echoes so much as something that he did a decade prior to Renfield that it seemed like a wasted effort of his talents. Oh, well, I hope it's not a wasted effort of your talents, Sophie, to have you come discussing this. I mean, comedy's subjective. Like, did this make you laugh? Did you find it funny? I I did a few game chuckles throughout, so not not a total waste of my time. That said, it's a very half-baked film. As Anna says, it's randomly also an action film for no particular reason. There's a five families mafioso plot with John Ralphio from Parks and Recreation in it as some tattooed gang lord for no particular reason. The, the areas that are comic too few and far between because there's a the premise of it that I think they lead within the trailer and which which did make me chuckle and did make me want to watch the film is that Renfield is attending this group therapy in a church and the gag is that everyone's in these codependent relationships with their narcissistic monster partners but he really does have a narcissistic literal monster so there's that dramatic irony watching as you see these other sort of poor downtrodden individuals trying to soothe someone who they don't realize exactly the extent of the trouble he's in and also the extent of how he's complicit in that monstrous behavior because Renfield is, is you know he's out there providing warm bodies for his master and that stuff is great but it's kind of just like scattered in the mix amidst a lot of scenes that are just quite tedious and and really I would say quite half-baked like the one thing I will say in the the film's favour is that I think it's under no illusions that it's anything under them so just like quite silly and inconsequential which is faint praise for a film it knows it's not good (laughs) 
But I mean, when it comes to these things, it's like so bad, it's good is a thing. You kind of almost wish that it had gone further into like ridiculousness and at least had that kind of level of joy. I do. And I also wish that it, it took itself a bit more seriously in the execution of any one of the strands that it introduces because it just sort of feebly totters on towards the finish line. And it's like, buddy, if you don't believe yourself, I can't believe in yourself. And also Renfield as a character, like in the end, he's presented as a hero, which look, I'm not expecting like a faithful execution of the Dracula lore here. No one was expecting that. But like take some interest in the fact that this man has been murdering people over centuries. And uh, yeah, like take a small amount of interest in that, please, sirs. I think there is a there is a really funny film inside this mess. Because if it just avoided getting into the whole action of it all, if it just avoided oversaturating itself with this Lobo crime family, with this kind of Nepo baby gangster played by Ben Schwartz, kind of occupying so much real estate with the whole FBI slash uh, corrupted police officers investigating the Lobo family, all of this simply does not matter. And it is not an action film. It's not 21 Jump Street. So if you leave that at the door and it just zeroed in on the quite funny premise of you have a literal monster as your toxic boss, that would have been funny. That would have made a really, really effective comedy film. And in some of the comedy moments, especially when you have people like Ben Schwartz, who is a great improviser, or people like Aquafina, who is really reined in uh, compared to her usual appearances in kind of comedy films. She's always the the wacky character actress. But here, she's a l- she's not quite the straight man, but she's close to that they're kind of mis they're not misused but they are wasted because they get bogged down by having to perform action stunts and have all this over the top almost superhero levels of badassery that Renfield has to perform and it feels completely out of place and ultimately it becomes really boring because you're just seeing one grotesquely over the top action sequence after another and then suddenly it's infiltrated by some quite good comedic scenes but it doesn't really commit to anything this is it it's commitment phobic they should have a support group for that as well as the uh, codependent relationship group if there was ever a commitment phobic monster it is the vampire <laughs> there we go that's the sequel penned by <laughs> anna Bogetskaya. <laughs> i mean i i don't know about you sophie did you sense a romantic subplot potentially materializing between the head of the lobo crime family and dracula because i thought there was a vibe there i was like oh are they gonna add a romantic plot to this already overstuffed mess Oh, there was definitely a moment where they sized each other up and then they just abandoned that. They definitely had more chemistry than Nick Colt and Aquafina, though. Mm. Oh, yeah. I was about to say, I mean, there, there are some certain things. I mean, we talk about kind of the, like there's less sexiness in so many films, but this one was really trying to force a little bit of sexual tension between two people that clearly had nothing more than a platonic level of respect for one another. Yeah. Oh, so, I mean, you said that, like, that you felt that this was, like, overstuffed and it has so many threads, though, but this is a 90-minute film. <laughs> like, <laughs> Thank God it's only 90 minutes. I can't believe I'm going to say this after uh, uh, based on a 90-minute film. Should have been 70. Yeah. Could have been 62 minutes. My favourite film Could have been a short film. Minutes. Yeah, and that would have been a great short film because, I, you know, I we're giving it a sort of gentle drubbing here. The, the comedy scenes... I was having such a nice time at the movies. I really enjoyed them. So in those 20 or 30 minutes where that that stuff was happening, it was great. So if they shed the rest of it and just sort of carved a little plot out of that, everyone's having a nice time. Exactly. Well, fair enough. I mean, that kind of buys into my theory of like, that. why is it that there are so many great comedy TV shows and so few good comedy films that come out that like maybe 20 minutes is the sweet spot and simply the creative mind cannot do much better than that most of the time. Oh, Layla, no, don't let Renfield turn you against feature comedies. This is this has gone too far. <laughs> well... My God, I don't know that there's even that much more to say about this. It really is like, it's all on the surface here. Like, there's not much to dig into, which is strange because vampires are famously a metaphor. (laughs) But there's not enough vampire in Renfield. This is it. And I like, I'm writing a feature for Curzon about Dracula through the ages and what it says about us as a society. And the only thing I could say about 
this portrayal of Dracula is that we've got to a point socially where we're just hopelessly postmodern and all we can do with a character as rich as this is do a like giant wink and nudge for the entirety of a feature film. It you know, it has nothing to say and it's not trying to say anything. It's just trying to go like, guys, Dracula, eh? What about that? He doesn't even need to be Dracula. He could be any any iconic monster. Any That's all the film requires. That we've got kind of a, a monster whose name is instantly recognizable. That's all that is required of him here. Exactly. But then, of course, it's the great cinema as IP conundrum, right? Because Renfield is recognizable because of his association with Dracula. Dracula is recognizable, the most famous vampire of all time, one of the most adapted books and characters. And he's been transformed in so many different ways that he, as a character, think has sort of lost that power and especially you know i'm sure we'll talk about this in the film club section the seductive power of dracula as well which had people in throes from the 1930s onwards but then we keep having to be reminded that dracula is a was scary and b was horny as hell so like by diffusing it with these stupid side adaptations and kind of reducing him to like this literal um like ip monster you really diffuse the power of the character yeah amen yeah, I just feel that there is just a happier timeline where we're here and you're talking about the Karen Kusama's done it again so beautifully. And, and we're all so happy in that timeline. And Renfield has inadvertently made me bone-chillingly depressed. Well, you know, this is the world we live in where Karen Kusama's version of Dracula gets canned with no expectation of a lifeline. And yet this gets greenlit, made, and is now a major release in our unsuspecting cinemas. <sighs> it is the darkest timeline. I do not care for it. <laughs> Anna, do you want to go first with your scores then in anticipation, enjoyment, and in retrospect? Minus four to minus five. Going into into the minus area. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> Sophie, what about you? For reasons now unclear to me, I was very excited for this film. <laughs> I've started to enjoy cinema as pure entertainment. And I thought maybe after a life of being an art ho, and I thought this might be really entertaining. And, um, you know, credit where credit's due. I was entertained for a portion of the film and um, added to the fact that at our screening, they gave us Cosmopolitans in blood bags. That made me very generous on the night. So that was a three. Uh, but yeah, in retrospect, there's just not there's not much there. So yeah, going to give it a two. Yeah, I think I'm somewhere with you. I did not get a Cosmopolitan, but I did find out about the 90 minute runtime just beforehand. And so I walked into that cinema absolutely thrilled, <laughs> probably at a five. And then, yeah, maybe a three, two for the other ones. I did laugh and I, do, and I don't always laugh. So I will give it that. But yeah, it, there's just not much there there. It felt like kind of not so much watching a film as like inhaling a gas. Or looking in the mirror and there's nothing there. Much That's a better. more interesting film than Renfield. <laughs> <laughs> that is a much better metaphor as well. Thank you, Sophie. This is why we keep you around. Next up, One Fine Morning. Sandra is a widow raising a young daughter and working as an interpreter. She often checks on her father, George, who's losing his sight and memory and needs to move to an assisted living facility. Sandra also reconnects with her old friend, Clement, who is married, and the two develop a secret romantic relationship. But first up, Little White Lies editor David Jenkins spoke to Mia Hansen-Love. Mia, welcome. Um, and it's lo lovely to be speaking to you again. In the film, we see these two worlds that are kind of intersecting, one involving George who is a kind of older character who is suffering from, from a disease and is sort of closer to the end of his life. And then there's another world involving Clement, who is a kind of boyfriend character. And both these worlds kind of are joined together with Sandra, Sandra, the main character played by Leia Sedu. And I wondered, like, where did your interest come in kind of bringing these two worlds together and telling a story which revealed that overlap? Well, I think it just came from life, <laughs> basically. I think what makes me want to write a film often has to do with my observation of, of life and, and more specifically, I would say, the observation of some 
story that I see in life that I haven't seen in a film yet, which of course you could say is an illusion because there were, there were so many films made. And, and uh, if we look into the history of cinema, maybe we could find and probably we could find another film dealing with the same kind of issues. But when I write, when I start writing the film, I have the conviction that I, that, that I'm the first one to be telling that story. And if it's an illusion, I don't think it's a bad, I mean, it's, it, it's okay as long as I move with with this feeling of being the telling a story that that needs to be told because if I don't tell it nobody will I remember having this um, feeling when I wrote my first feature when I wrote my second it was very clear to me and then I maybe I stopped thinking like that but it was still there but I was less aware of, of this but in, in the case of, of that film there was that there was this idea that well maybe there has been many film made on woman and daughter and, and uh, father relationships or sick fathers maybe there were a lot of films made about new start in life or new love after years of solitude but maybe there was not a film made about both happening at the same time and that wouldn't be enough I mean the, fa the fact that uh, the first one wouldn't be a good reason to do it except that I experienced that myself and I think it says something about how life is going it says something about the variety and the complexity of life and because I observed that myself I thought it would be interesting to try and find a, a cinematographic way of a, a, a translation to that experience and is that idea of that you talk about this this kind of truth and experience and like bringing these things that you have had experience of to the to screen and to the stories how do you know when the story is right and that you, that, that kind of experience has this sort of dramatic element to it that you can kind of bring to the screen or fictionalize and and make into a story is is is, is this an impulse that you you feel has become more sensitive over the years well i think there are two different levels for me i mean on the one hand i think i time is involved in anything that i write i need time not necessarily a long, long time to write it but i think in all of my films in one way or another they deal with passing of time meaning that they were not just the result of one short experience or one specific moment in my life they always had to do with an experience that takes place in a long stretch of time my films are always a result of um, experiences and emotions that have matured within me so they never come from just like a you know an idea a sudden idea uh, that I would think is a good idea and then up 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 you know very quickly I would write the film even films that could look like the deal with an instant would always be the result of a longer experience they would connect with my childhood some somehow or things that I went through years ago so there is this time thing about my films I would say even though you, you could you could say I've I've made a lot of film, ev films every two years it, it it could look like a lot but in the end each of my film has roots in the past but then there is another level and I would say that's the where I really get the impulse where it's a moment where some something a process that is uh, unconscious that I'm not necessarily aware of be becomes more conscious it's the moment where I become aware that there is a film here and that I need to do this film and this moment usually has to do with one specific image that I wants to unfold or transform into a story and usually this image has to do with the ending of the film I think uh, most of my films if not all of them I became aware uh, conscious of, their, of, of, of my desire to write them once I had the ending of them and it's true about this film the, one of the last well the last scene of the film the, the epilogue uh, where we see Sandra her daughter her boyfriend visiting her dad and it's the only scene where we see them all together because as you said in the beginning the rest of the film is two parallel stories that are united by Sandra's presence but the relationship that she has with her boyfriend and the one with her father are two separate things and it's the one scene where it all comes together and really the film to me started at that specific uh, moment. Are the, these images that you have are these private? Are these these images that you tell other people or write about or are these things that are kind of only known to you? Mm, well, in the case of that scene, <laughs> there are some people close to me that, that includes my daughter who would maybe recognize it. So I cannot say they are known only to me because they sometimes involve uh, people 
uh, who are close to me. But I um, I don't talk to many people of these moments. Maybe one or two would be the maximum. But most of the time, if I have a dialogue with somebody of uh, about something that I'm going to write... Uh, And, and uh, especially since my films are very personal, it, it, w it would usually be with one person. So it's, a, it's a bit of an element of the production design in the film that I find like really moving is the, the way that George's flat looks. And throughout the process of the film and his, his kind of degradation, we see the flat being stripped of all its belongings and things being taken away and being passed on. But then you also have Sandra's apartment as well. And... They, they kind of look similar and it's mm. a really nice sort of moving connection and I'd love to know just a bit about how did you bring those, th those spaces to life? Well, locations have always been very um, important to me and difficult issues since um, I always wanted uh, the apartments where the characters of my film live to to not be more spacious than what they are in real life. There is always, you know, there is this cliche uh, that most of the people working in films, I think, share that uh, it's okay it, it, that, that apartments in films should be bigger than they should in real life or it's okay that they would be bigger than, than, than what makes sense for that character because people somehow won't notice and uh, I totally disagree with that because I think that actually places look bigger in films than in life so if you choose a place and it's bigger than it, what it should be well it, it looks even bigger on screen so and that's how you end up having so many films who represent characters who are supposed to not be so rich and they end up having like this big apartment you know in the center of Paris and which means that they are really rich you know so I give I guess that's one of the reasons why I give a lot of attention to that because uh, th there is the social dimension of uh, each uh, film but I just find it uh, more right uh, but also uh, I never wanted to film in studio I always wanted to film in real places and uh, I love to adapt to those constraints uh, that real places give because if you film in a tiny Parisian apartment under the roofs you know in, 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 a, in an old area in an old building I mean you don't have that many possibilities of angles you have to adapt so people would think Well, it's less comfortable, certainly. Uh, sometimes the team is unhappy because they have less space. It means less people in the room. But I, I love that, actually. I love because I think these constraints are for the benefit of the film. I think it gives a soul and a authenticity to the films that the locations would be right, you know. And also, and but it's connected in, in the apartments of the characters in my films, um, especially when they are intellectuals which they are in that film I give a lot, a lot of attention to the books they have and I think because you mentioned uh, Georg's apartment and how it changes and, and becomes empty I have to mention the books because it's actually the, almost his, the only thing it's not the only thing that's in the apartment but it's the main thing about that apartment Georg has is that it's, a, it's an apartment full with shelters full, full of books and these books uh, that I filmed were the books of, of my father and I really enjoyed also uh, just as I do with the filming apartments that are real apartments and real places I also love filming I, I think it's very important when you, when you film a library um, that this library should be true and that it's, it, it should be uh, made of books that make sense for the character and I always felt like that since ever I started uh, uh, writing films uh, uh, literally choosing <laughs> the books like not maybe not one by one but at least the editions and so that they would make sense in that case the character is a philosopher he is a former philosophy teacher he, he he was a translator he speaks german so the books had to be philosophy books they had to be also uh, german editions and there's also the moving sequence later on where just carrying on from what you're saying about the books is when sandra says that the books become a person's biography they are the thing that kind of ends up representing that person or in the case of Georg what what is kind of left of him and is that something you feel that the sort of it's it's nice to see kind of physical these physical objects become such an important part of a film and especially now when they're not so you know uh, physical media is not as, as sort of treasured as it maybe once was yeah well of course I mean of course they are not only physical objects to me and of course they are physical objects too but they are more much more than that because they are the expression of a quest they are the expression of a spiritual quest of a relationship to to to, to life of a personality of a sensibility and I think 
even if people don't know what these books are, that they, they don't have the time, you know, to, to read the title, they, they're not supposed to read the titles of the book. And, 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 and But still, I, I have maybe I'm a, a bit mystical about that, but I think you have to be mystical to be filmmaker somehow because I think cinema deals with invisible world. So I think much more than just objects, they are, are, they are the, the link to the invisible spiritual world. There's a scene scene later on which is really uh, very moving when uh, Sandra starts to play some Schubert music to Georg and he kind of rejects it. And it's sort of this idea of he's in this place where he, he no longer feels he has a connection with it or can no longer appreciate it. I'd love to sort of hear, hear a sort of comment about that that, mm. that scene and that, dis- that decision that, he, that, that Georg makes. And where that comes from? Well, you mean that decision of not listening to the music, yeah, where he where he sort of shies away from it in a very yeah. kind of diplomatic way. Yeah, because he's a very delicate character, very polite, even when he's unable, when he becomes really unable to express himself and to speak and to be rational. The one thing that is still left for him is like his politeness, which something that I always thought was extremely moving about my father. This scene is actually to me. I think the saddest scene I ever filmed <laughs> to, a, to a degree that it's almost hard to speak about it. I mean, just because it connects with probably what I experience as one of the saddest moments of um, the visits to my father. When Because that's something I've, I've, I've experienced, this moment where I, I thought even though he could not speak anymore, we, could, we were sharing our, the, the, our love for the music and and Schubert was probably my father's favorite um, composer. And at some point, like I, I played Schubert, and he, and, and, and he didn't want to hear it. And he said he found a way to say it. And it was it made me extremely sad because what it was to me, the way I interpreted it, is was like that it was too painful because it even if he wasn't really aware of the meaning of that what it was saying it was that he it connected him with his past when he was still able to think and to speak and it's it's it, and and he wasn't able anymore and so it was like a it was just it was as if looking at an old picture of him when he was not sick and and that was unbearable when you have somebody close to you who is very sick it could be consoling to think that he or she can still listen to the music that he loves and he could find some he- not healing but you know positivity yeah some peace in music and actually thinking that even that becomes impossible because it's too painful uh, at some point i i found it unbearable and that's where the film really becomes cathartic to me because what i did in the film is i well i wrote that scene that's very very close to my experience to my memory i actually shot that scene in the same room where my father was but then in the film well she had to, she stopped the music but then later in the film in the next scene when she's on the bus i have the music played as if it's in her head somehow as if she's enjoy she at least can carry carry with her the music that her father cannot listen and and somehow it's a huge consolation it's like a, it's as if i was trying to heal from that experience while i'm making the film <laughs> You understand what yeah, I mean? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I think just hearing you talk about it makes that sequence even richer and, and, and sadder, actually. Yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I don't want my film to sound even more sad than it is. <laughs> well, thank you so much for, for that interview. That's really, really great. Thank you. Thank you very much. So carrying on with kind of our can theme, this premiered at last year's festival. Is that where you first saw it, Sophie? Yes. It is. And Mia Hansen Love is one of my all-time favourite directors for a reason that is sort of to do with the fabric of her films. She, to me, captures the feeling of time passing in a very beautiful, moving way. So her characters will go through these seismic, shattering events. And whereas we're used to seeing these kind of things portrayed in a way that is very static and dramatic, she will naturalistically capture them. She will naturalistically capture their impact, but everything continues to move forward. And I find that personally very soothing um, because we all go through stuff. And 
in those moments where I am going through stuff, I do tend to turn to the arts and I tend to turn to artworks that I feel can somehow hold this heaviness in a way that lightens it. And she does that time and time again. This is how she works. So I I kind of know that I will get something out of her films. That said, the first time I watched this in Cannes, I enjoyed it, but not as much as some of her previous films because I was actually struggling with uh, Lea Seydoux because often Mia Hansen-Love will work with quite small French actors. And I was a little bit overwhelmed by seeing someone who I see as this sort of view movie star siren in the role of a Parisian everyman, every woman. What's more, a widow. What's more like a woman who, like, in, in her own beautiful words, like, she she when she meets Clement, she's not been with anyone since her husband died. And she says, I thought my love life was over. And I just had some difficulty with that initially with buying her in that role however when I returned to it recently I was like this is like the best Leah pseudo performance I've ever seen in my life it's so sensitive so attuned so I don't know riddle me that what did uh, what did you two think of uh, Leah pseudo in in the in the film I actually really responded to her being cast in a role that felt a little bit more gentle and of a character that felt more that was going through several contradictory big emotional upheavals you know on the one hand falling in love on the other hand grappling with her father's slow descent into into illness and even the idea of her father dying so I welcome that change of pace because actually my image of Leia Seydoux has always been much more associated with art cinema rather than her arm candy roles in big Hollywood productions. Like I always see those as very much beneath her star potential and beneath kind of her charisma on screen and her capabilities as an actress. So I didn't have that that push and pull that you were describing, Sophie. I saw this film at Cannes as well last year and absolutely loved it at that time. And we visited again once more this week and loved it once more and felt instantly at home in this world that Mia hansen Luva was was building. And she always manages to do this in, in her work. And some of her films have resonated with me more than others, but I absolutely loved Bergman Island. And this one felt like an extension of some of those ideas of what it feels like to be to be a woman pulled in multiple different directions and all those directions having to coexist all at the same time. Her different roles in One Fine Morning, you know, she's a she's a mother, she's a carer, um, she she's a mistress, she's a uh, she's a daughter. So being kind of forced to grapple with all those different variants of her own identity, there's this risk I think of the film feeling small for some people because a lot of things happen, but not that much happens but it's a film for me of very small apartments and very large emotions oh yes sorry sophie's doing the chef's kiss and i just kind of want to <laughs> i mean the we kind of do have these two threads that are running concurrently this sort of she's grappling with this you know falling in love with this man and you know, i suppose i mean i hate the term mistress but i suppose she becomes a mistress as well as her father's decline i mean did you find yourself drawn more to one of those narratives sophie or did it kind of all come together as one well as anna said I feel like the fact that they have to coexist is integral to what the film is about. On the one hand, she's dealing with losing someone, not even just in terms of him dying, but in terms of this is a man that she knew as a voracious reader, like a, a philosophy teacher. One component of his illness, Benson syndrome, which is a variant about Alzheimer's, is that he's losing his eyesight and he can't read anymore. So she's losing him in the sense of the man she new is disappearing and it's tragic and it's so 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 painful and pascal gregory who plays the role of her father gives an incredibly moving performance i understand that mia hansen love actually recorded her father uh, as he was deteriorating and like his speech was deteriorating and, and played it to pascal gregory and so this is a very raw uh, well-informed performance of this this illness i think quite a lot of people haven't actually heard of so that's that is its own extraordinarily heartbreaking subject and most films would just have that as a subject. But it's integral to the film that there's more going on. As Anna says, the way that life happens and comes at us isn't in these like neatly parceled out events. And so simultaneously, she's meeting this man. Although it gives her this grand passion, it comes with its own complications as well, because Clément is married. 
and he's unpredictable and maybe he's going to stay and maybe he's going to go and she doesn't know. So not. I think it's, it can be a little bit of a, a shock to the sort of film goer's system to see these events playing out with no sort of shoehorned in narrative linkage she, she just flows between them but I think once you get on board with it and you understand it the fact that she she is doing that becomes the fabric of the film itself and I want to I want to pick up a little bit on because I thought it was such an interesting question to think uh, I really agree that this film kind of changes a little bit with every viewing because when I first saw it I'm very much was focusing on the 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 heartbreaking narrative with with the dad and I think there's an additional really deeply moving series of scenes peppered in throughout the film where she's disposing of his library his life's work his life's collection and she herself her job which we see glimmers of throughout the film is as a translator so she's also you know a person who's constantly working with language and with words and one of the most heartbreaking moments is when she's you know she runs into former students of her father who have so much appreciation for him and has to dispose of his books and they're essentially not in a vulture style way but they are taking apart the bits of him the objects that are left behind as she as she dismantles his apartment uh, and has to play, place him in a care facility. And then the second time around, kind of this variation of the mistress narrative. You know, she's not someone who's out there to get Clement or, you know, uh, she's not at all kind of a vixen-like uh, character. But this is a different perspective for the narrative of, oh, this is a, a man who is unfaithful to his partner, also has a child. But it is both a great a great passion that reawakens her in so many ways. And as we see her fall head over heels for that and enjoy it, and as we've grown to care for her, I think there is an element of, yes, good for you, you get yours. But there is a, it really transforms even as she understands the complications of that and demands more. Seeing that entirely from Sandra's point of view with Clement really kind of popping in into her life very much at his convenience to begin with it's it's a i think it's um it's a transformation of the the films around infidelity that we have mostly seen through male characters point of view traditionally and also i think if there's a theme of this episode of truth and movies it's, it's sex and death right that's the dracula thing and those <laughs> two just go together like it's a psychological thing when you're around death you want the affirmation of the body and this film in its incredibly light touch naturalistic way is is exactly about that like these two very carnal forces in our life as as expressed through this very unassuming humble woman who's just trying to get by but these this is these things are happening as as they will happen to us all Wow, I mean that they they couldn't be three more different films in many respects, but yes, now I suppose those things do sit by side by side in the mind and and in life. I guess with this, it's just sort of it's also the kind of living death of it all. I mean, not to try and make everything super linked up, but I mean, I think that's why there's something so terrifying about vampires, and there is something so terrible about an illness like what her father suffers through because it's the sort of almost not dying that chills the soul. We should, we should get on to the next one before I enter full-blown existential crisis mode. Anna, do you want to start with your scores? Oh, I would say 555 five, five across the board. A Mia Hansen-Luve film is always uh, an exciting moment. And Sophie, what about you? Yeah, that's a, that's a snap for me if we take the most recent viewing. In, in Cannes, it would have been a 545, five, but now it's 555. Five, five. And that actually, to me, is a testament of a great film that you, you can t it stays alive. And each time you watch it, a different part of that life force enters your bloodstream vampirically. Well, I was not at Cannes, so um, I'm probably at 444, but I'm excited to revisit in, in a year and see if I kind of get to these, these heady heights of fives. Next up, it's Film Club. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. 
Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. The centuries-old vampire Count Dracula comes to England to seduce the barrister Jonathan Harker's fiancée Mina Murray and inflict havoc on a foreign land. Anna, this is Francis Ford Coppola. This is Bram Stoker. This is Dracula. This is the 90s. I gotta assume this is very much your sort of thing. This is so extremely my jam. And actually, I I have a long-winded history with this film because I remember seeing the poster for this film, which is this terrifying gothic ordeal with just the blood-red word Dracula at the heart of it, but everything is very grey and very black. And I ha- I saw this poster when I was a child at a friend's parents house and I did not see the movie until many late years later but in my mind I had already decided that this was the most terrifying movie ever made and that I could not watch it until I was ready. It is not the most terrifying movie ever made however it is deeply fascinating and everything ever all at once in vampire form. I particularly love the context of this of this film existing because this is very much Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula and he's throwing every single idea, filmmaking technique, and family relative at this production because literally ev- almost every single clan of the Coppola family was working on the on the film. And in particular of the fact that it was the first one out of a, a very small brief window in the 90s when there was a desire to reinterpret the classic monsters that had kind of fallen into parody and disrepute meaning box office um box office poison and Bram Stoker's Dracula was the one that kickstarted it and it was this film it was Mary Shelley's Frankenstein which was the next on Coppola's list of great gothic adaptations but he eventually just gave that over to Kenneth Branagh there's Wolf by Mike Nichols and Mary Riley, which nobody should watch and stars John Malkovich and Julia Roberts as the titular Mary Riley and reinvents the Jekyll and Hyde story. But this is arguably the only success out of those four films that came out within a four-year period. And it really forgoes the horror in order to focus on this doomed gothic century-spanning love story between Mina and Dracula, who's played here by Gary Oldman, which again, a very plotted personal history. This film single-handedly convinced me for years that Gary Oldman was hot and I still blame it for it. You've really flagged something with me, I gotta say, because you said every Coppola, but Nick Cage is a Coppola. Why is he not in this film? He was huge in the 90s. I'm I'm gonna say that I'm, this is entirely my own theory and is absolutely not based in reality or any research. I want to say it's because he was continuing in his plot to be set, a, a set apart from the Coppola family, so nobody would think he was a Nepo baby. Interesting that he then returned with the two Dracula so many decades later. Uh, but Sophie, for you, as a kind of mashup of sex and death, did this work well? For me, this is an absolute mass of contradictions because I think Francis Ford Coppola took it very, very, very seriously. But it is very, 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 very silly. It's one of the silliest things I've ever seen in my life. It's extremely silly. And um, I think the definition of camp is that the film has to be earnest. Is that correct? So, yeah, uh, uh, Gary Oldman was so very earnest, but it's, ooh, it's like self-serious baroque opera but using such techniques as like red eyes popping up in the sky and like there's never a dull moment Anna's absolutely right it's everything everywhere all at once but so it is like it's impossible to be bored and for that I salute the film deeply because you know it's it's nice to know that you can turn to it should you wish to be overstimulated but in terms of a, a sort of film that hangs together or uh, a, a, a telling of the story of Dracula that respects the source text. It's hard to even give a straight answer to actually any of those questions because on the one hand, it's actually extre- an extremely loyal adaptation in terms of the sort of core plot 
but then it sort of grafts on this mythology that is entirely of uh, Francis Ford Coppola's making and has since sort of like slightly contaminated Dracula lore. So it's like, you can't really, for me, I can't even give a straight answer to any question about Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula because it's always like, yes, but also no. I mean, Sadie Frost's character is just always near orgasm, which is something I kind of didn't really appreciate from, from my previous viewings. I mean, in terms of the roles that he gives the women in this film, so is there kind of anything that you thought was interesting? Yes. No, I mean, I, I'm i glad you mentioned Sadie Frost's role because Lucy in the book, she's this like sweet, demure lady. So like... This version is is like some kind of fever fantasy of the character. Uh, it's just, I mean, it's bizarre. It's virtuoso from Sadie. She's all guns blazing. But yeah, like, I don't know why all the women in this are portrayed as sluts, apart from Winona Ryder. That's unclear to me. But then I do think it was the 90s. I mean, the 90s yeah. are a dark and horny time. Bring them back, I say. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, it is very 90s. But one of the sort of good things about that is like it's very practical compared to the sort of green screeny, you know, computer stimulated blood that we get a lot of now. I mean, that did, I've got to assume that was, again, very much your sort of thing, Anna. Very much so. But one of the things it was I remember being mocked about for ages was that like Keanu Reeves is so terrible in this his accent is so dreadful I mean Anna did you hate him in this or were you charmed listen I could never hate Keanu Reeves I I don't think that's humanly possible it would be like hating a puppy who could do that those people should not be allowed to exist or go on podcast to trash talk poor Keanu who was you know, I probably had a bad agent who advised him to take on too many period film roles. Um, His accent is not great. It really isn't. But one of the things that I genuinely love about Bram Stoker's Dracula is the fact that every single actor in this film is acting their little socks off, but in a completely different film. Anthony Hopkins is doing some sort of slapstick comedy. He's acting in Renfield, but you know... 30 years too early. Sadie Frost, like you mentioned, is just rubbing herself against every wall and man that she comes into contact with. Gary Oldman thinks he's doing Shakespeare. And, <laughs> and bless him, Keanu Reeves is extremely confused and thinks he's still doing much ado about nothing. So... <laughs> You know what? This is why I like Keanu Reeves in this. I am Keanu Reeves in this. I feel as he feels. I feel confused. I don't know what my <laughs> accent is. I don't know who the people I am are. So he's the perfect entry point, I think. <laughs> he's, he's the audience surrogate. This is the true, you know, and he's not Renfield. He's playing Jonathan and Carker, but Renfield is played by Tom Waits for absolutely no discernible reason in this film. Uh, <laughs> I loved him in this. He was my highlight. I don't know what Tom Waits is doing. It kind of defies the boundaries of actual language, but it was great. It was phenomenal. He should have been the lead in Renfield. Leave yeah. Nicholas Holt alone. This is it. Like, Renfield is an insect eating freak, not some kind of like demure, polite, aristocratic fellow who's dreadfully sorry about all this murder business. No, Renfield <laughs> is off the chain. Exactly. I mean, Sophie, I mean, were you at least able to kind of enjoy the sort of big bloody finale? Because it does feel that so much of vampires nowadays, we expect them to just kind of be poked quickly and then disintegrate immediately. I mean, that this gets very gory. Was that for you? Well, you know who was poked quickly? It was Sadie Frost. <laughs> um, yeah, but that's not even true because that was that lengthy scene with the hellhound. But yeah, like, look, it's not that I didn't enjoy it. I just, I, I, I can't just stand up with my hands on my heart and say that this was a good film. But, it, but that is separate to audience enjoyment. If you want to talk about say bad, it's good. This is the kind of territory that Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula is in. And it is front it's build Bram Stoker's Dracula, but it really should be Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula. It it fully is. I don't I don't actually think it's bad. I think it's way too interesting to be bad. And there are elements to it that I think are genuinely good. Like the the costume design 
Like, that's unbelievably beautiful in this Baroque, kind of gothy, almost metallic way. I love the music. And I have to say, kind of, as much as it is throwing a lot of ideas at the wall, it is so visually distinctive that I have a... It's a film that I will never turn off if it pops up. I will just have to watch the rest of it. You know who's never turned off? It's Sadie Frost. (laughs) Never. She's somewhere in the in the bowels of hell humping the devil. <laughs> some, some, you know, some truly unconscionable choices were made there. I fully imagine I would I would love to write the oral history of that production because I would love to hear from Sadie Frost if she was encouraged by Francis Ford Coppola to just do more. More humping more slobbering all over Richard E. Grant and Carrie Elvis and the other one bless him never for, never remember his name I yeah, the one was empowered <laughs> <laughs> it's sex positivity damn it I'm actually crying but you're right we didn't we check in with Sadie Frost someone needs to talk to Sadie did Sadie Frost give many interviews around the time of its release do we know no, it's really. I was on a Zoom with Zadie Frost a few months ago. I really wish I kind of revisited this first. I would have had questions. Yeah, yeah. That's that's it. That my takeaway from this debacle is that we do need to hear from Sadie Frost extensively on the on the subject of that characterization of Lucy. That that is a story that needs to be told, and also from Monica Bellucci. Mm. about what was actually going on while Dracula was away chasing Mina Harker. What were the brides up to? Who were they eating? Who were they eating? Renfield's off eating bugs. Dracula's off eating all of London. What's What are the brides consuming? They're sort of nibbling on Keanu Reeves for sustenance, <laughs> aren't they? <laughs> and when he leaves? When he leaves, what's up? You know, it's like leaving your cat when you go without any food or water when you go on a business trip. Well, maybe Gary Oldman just left a bag of babies for them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They have to ration the babies. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if Karen Kusama's now got a little gap in her schedule, if she would like to turn, tell the Dracula story from their point of view, I think that would also be very interesting. Sorry, I mean, Anna, I, I'm never going to advocate for uh, everything being turned into a limited se- television series because I think we've taken a good idea too far by this point. But I would advocate for this version of Dracula to be extended into a 10-hour show. Absolutely. Yes, yes, yes. This is the, this is the untapped potential. Dracula as an IP, no more. Moratorium. But let's have... a sincere retelling from a master of horror of the brides of dracula and not just the pastiche exploitation style they're sexy and they're horny and they want to eat your baby like a proper exploration of it because i they think you don't really get a sense that this is three distinct people to be honest like they don't even really embody archetypes they've both got the same kind of one note we're horny and hungry sure yeah. and i think that monica bellucci can give us more than that even even within a 40 minute episode we could really get into like what makes these three different brides tick i'm i'm in i'm in are you in anna i'm absolutely in brides of dracula coming to hbo max in 2025 oh we would kick ass as that writer's room i've got to say <laughs> oh, we should move on to one last thing so, Sophie, I absolutely devoured your last recommendation, Sarah Poli's book, Run Towards the Danger. It was incredible. So the bar is very high for this episode's one. What are you going to recommend? It's another, it's actually not that dissimilar thematically, but it's different formally. It's a book, it's a, a book that I see a lot of people reading on the tube now called The Body Keeps the Score uh, by Bessel van der Kelk, Kolk, and... It was written originally, I think, as a, a manual for psychiatrists and psychologists, but it's so well written and so compassionately written that it's become a sort of more general public t- type of fair. And it's just, it's an account of trauma that's so incredibly detailed and far-reaching. He uses a lot of case studies and it's, so it's quite it's quite heavy reading in the sense that he he uses a lot of case studies of people with PTSD induced by either 
combat or sexual abuse. And he, you know, he would detail the, these people's stories. But then he kind of he, he kind of starts like in the post-Vietnam era and how people didn't really understand trauma at that time. And so vets coming back and having flashbacks and developing destructive habits were just often misdiagnosed as schizophrenic or something like this. So he, he, he kind of starts at that point and then he just moves over time. But he's so curious and he's so compassionate about about the way that, that, that trauma works. And also, you know, the book is divided into sections. So it's like, for me, I started reading it at the front and then I was like, I want to move to the recovery section. And like th- that is as detailed, as nuanced. You know, it, 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 I think this is the, this, a lot of people have said this is like a very transformative book. Like, I think mental health services in general are quite patchy in, in this country and, 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 you know, beyond the borders of this country also. And this is just kind of a, in the, in the pages of this book, it's just like, it's exquisite. It's the best mental health care in book form and you could read it from the point of view of trying to understand yourself you can read it from the point of view of trying to understand people that you've known and you've met and yeah it's just it's like it's the absolute gold standard I would say for not just trauma understanding trauma but also sort of understanding the relationship between the mind the body the soul it's 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 not written in that sort of detached clinician's language even though he does have that forensic and that analytic capacity and you trust entirely his medical credentials it's written in a very humane and curious way so it's just a beautiful book that sounds wonderful thank you I hadn't heard about that and that's I can't wait for my life to be transformed yet again go slow um, it, is, it is it is very heavy going so I'd say but like well, I say that to you but I reckon you'll race through it in a day because you're kind of wired that way but like it's uh yeah it, it's really special uh Anna do you have something special for us as well I do and uh, I've heard of the body keeps the score so I I'm excited I've always kept it on the back burner but you're glowing description, Sophie, maybe is pushing me to put it at the top of my pile. Uh, uh, Mine is a novel that I read earlier this year. I am on a deeply obnoxious personal quest to just get back to my teenage reading habits, which were roughly like a book a day or every two days. So I'm tracking myself. (laughs) And this, I think, is one of the books that I was really looking forward to from last year and finally got to it earlier back in January or February, I think. And it's Julia Armfield's novel, Our Wives Under the Sea. And for those of you not familiar with her, she's mostly a novelist, but she occasionally writes essays that never cease to just amaze me of some of the most intriguing and profound essays on um, on the body, on horror, on literature and cinema and the bigger ideas that are hiding in plain sight between completely unrelated properties. But Our Wives Under the Sea, to give you a big descriptor, is it's about it's a marriage between two women and one of them is uh, a marine biologist. And so she has to travel very often on expeditions underneath the sea. And one of those work trips does not go according to plan, but she returns as a different person. And I won't kind of go into details about what happens, but it essentially uh, told from the point of view of both the protagonist, Miri, who's the wife who stayed on land, and Leah, who's the wife who returns from the sea. And we get glimpses of what happened in the depths of the ocean, which is something that has always been personally terrifying for me, what is lurking underneath the very depth of of the sea, hopefully mermaids, but probably something much spookier. And Miri, soup, as they say. <laughs> and Miri, who is both elated that her partner has returned and also somewhat terrified that what has come back is not entirely her wife. And it's a novel very much about grief, but grief in real time, because the person you love is there. So the expectation for you to be happy and the expectation for everything to be fine is still very much uh, alive. But it it simply is not the same. And the very slow grappling of that uh, and, and Armfield's writing in particular is so eerie and soothing at the same time and deeply sensual as well. You can really feel the mourning of a relationship through the writing and through the horror that she hints at. And I don't want to go too much into into plot details because it gets it gets exquisitely horrific. Ooh. I feel like we are all so aligned on loving these kind of incredibly difficult, twisted but beautiful 
things. <laughs> and that will also be the subject of our uh, remake of uh, The Brides of Dracula. But thank you. Brides of Dracula so under the sea. <laughs> <gasps> Horror moments. Someone call the president of Hollywood. I am in. So if you've got thoughts on these films, you can email truthedmovies at TCO London or tweet us at LWLies. Next week, who will survive when evil dead rise? Will we learn how to blow up a pipeline? And does Peter Jackson's brain dead still hold up? Thanks very much for tuning in. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Truth and Movies is hosted by me, Leila Latif, and my guests this week were Anna Bogatskaya and Sophie Montskathman. The podcast is produced by TCO London and edited by Bob Stackers. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.